Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. What are you doing this very moment while you listen into the podcast? Do you have the podcast on while you work at your office? Maybe you're doing the dishes, working out maybe? I wager there is a good chance that you're on the road while you listen. And I bet there's a decent chance that you're stuck in traffic. For those of us with commutes, traffic can make all the difference, right? Unexpected delays due to construction or an accident make for a rough start to the morning. For me, an uncharacteristically light traffic day can add a little pep to my step. Wow, I sound like an actual adult now. A really lame adult, to be honest. But anyway, kidding aside, according to a New York Times article from January of 2019 titled Stuck and Stressed, The Health Costs of Traffic, traffic-related stress correlates to, believe it or not, an increase in domestic violence. This is serious business for sure. But what if we no longer have to navigate through traffic? What if someone or something does it for us? That same New York Times article poses the following question, and I quote, Although self-driving cars won't cure traffic woes on their own, they may be able to reduce stress. If you're crawling along in traffic and are late to an appointment but are allowed to take a nap, play video games, watch your favorite TV show, or sip on a cocktail, will that reduce your stress? Hmm. Self-driving cars. To us lawyers, that question is chock full of even more questions. Questions that we lovingly refer to as, quote, legal issues. To help us drive through the traffic jam of legal issues posed by the prospect of self-driving cars, we have with us today Quentin Brogdon and Ronald Hedges. Quentin is a partner at Crane Brogdon Rogers in Dallas, where he represents plaintiffs in complex and catastrophic personal injury cases. Quentin has an illustrious resume filled with accolades and credentials, but what might be most important for our purposes is that he has represented plaintiffs against car makers whose products boast some form of autonomous driving, and he has spoken frequently and articulately about the legal issues surrounding those vehicles. Ron Hedges is senior counsel in the New York City office of Denton's U.S. Ron's legal talent is multifaceted. He is an expert on electronic discovery. He was a federal magistrate judge for 31 years, and he knows a thing or two or a hundred about self-driving cars, especially from the defense perspective, having written an article titled, Can States Steer Clear of Liability for Accidents Involving Autonomous Vehicle Technology? That article appears in the fall 2019 edition of Tort Source, a publication by the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section, aka TIPS, of the American Bar Association. TIPS also has an auto law committee where you can learn more about this fascinating and growing topic. Now, without any further ado, let's welcome Quentin and Ron. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Rocky. Thank you for having us, Rocky. Oh, absolutely. So, Ron, let's let's start with you and let's get some basics. What is a self-driving car and do any actually exist? We have to actually step back a little okay. from the concept of the self-driving car. Okay. And talk about the vehicles that are on the road today. Okay. Are there autonomous vehicles on the road today? Yes, they are testing more than anything else. So some states are beginning to regulate for it. And we're seeing areas where AVs, autonomous vehicles, are being operated. But in addition to that, we have vehicles on the road that are not autonomous, but have automatic systems or the like within the vehicles to assist in driving. So we have those on the road all the time. And I'm sure 
that Quentin can talk about those from how you describe what his practice is. So I expect he's had some litigation involving <laughs> that. So we have two types of vehicles. The last estimate I seen for all autonomous vehicles on the road says that that should happen in around 2040. So we have a couple of years to go before we worry about that. And we're always going to have the legacy system, if you will, where at least I assuming we're going, we're going to have a legacy system where there are going to be automated vehicles or autonomous vehicles, driver assisted vehicles and old vehicles, if you will, maybe antiques, whatever you want to call them that are going to be on the road until we regulate somehow to separate those vehicles or eliminate one from a road. All right. So let's, let's maybe walk through those, those different categories. Now, first of all, Quentin, do you, do you concur with that overview of this industry or, or is there some other nuance that we need to be aware of? No, I concur. I concur with Ron's view of the industry. All right. So let's, let's walk through these. So I think obviously we've got the, what I'll call traditional cars, the ones that we operate completely on our own. And those go back, you know, from the 1960s on before to when people did all their driving themselves. Now, Ron, you also mentioned where you've got cars with some kind of driver assistance. Would an example of that be just your traditional cruise control, or are you talking about something else? Cruise control is what I expect most people would think of, but now we have other aiding mechanisms, for example, that might apply brakes automatically, that might allow you to park automatically and the like. So those are some examples I would give of these assisted vehicles. We have some other vehicles that are self-driving, but they still have drivers there as a safety. And we've seen a couple accidents, unfortunately, one or two fatal involving vehicles like that. So we're running the gamut of things now. Sure. And and you mentioned the regulatory hurdles that some some states, maybe some local governments are are trying to run through the regulations and figure out how to regulate for I guess, autonomous vehicles or semi-autonomous vehicles. What are those regulatory hurdles and what are the issues surrounding those regulations? First, there's the question of which governmental entity is going to be doing the regulating. The federal government sets a number of standards now for vehicles on safety and the like. But the federal government seems to be taking a pretty, not lax, maybe a step back attitude to allow experimentation by the states, at least as far as allowing these vehicles on the road. What I expect we'll see one of these days are federal regulations that are going to be talking about the levels of autonomy and the like that may be prescribing safety related matters to be applied uniformly across the United States the actual operation of vehicles is something that I believe is going to be regulated at the state level. And the DOT, U.S. DOT, the Department of Transportation, just came out with a document earlier this year talking about autonomous vehicles. I think I'm summarizing accurately what that, that's a document 3.0, and another earlier document 2.0, where the federal government is going as far as regulation. Now, at that point, we're talking about regulation from the from the federal or state level. There's also the issue of of individual liability in the event of a collision, whether that's a driver's liability or it's an automaker's liability. So, Quentin, why don't we why don't we have you weigh in on that question? So, so we know that there's this question that Ron just posed about 
the regulations and how you, who regulates autonomous vehicles and how they are to be regulated. But in the event of an accident, is there, is there, are we relying simply on a regulatory scheme or are we still going back to driver error or manufacturer error? Can you, can you walk us, walk us through that, that tightrope, especially in the era or the impending era of autonomous vehicles? Rocky, there's a raging debate going on as to whether the existing regime can adapt. Mm. Uh, the Brookings Institution is representative of those who say the current regime can adapt and that we do not need, the federal government does not need to preempt state court authority regarding autonomous vehicle liability, that that would be a mistake, and that our existing regime of products liability law has proven to be remarkably adaptive to new technologies, and it will do so again in the field of AVs. The RAND Corporation, on the other hand, is representative of those who say that we cannot adapt uh, and that Congress should consider preempting inconsistent state court remedies to basically minimize uh, you know, what the manufacturers and others have to deal with across state lines. And so I, for one, believe that our existing regime has been adaptable traditionally to airplanes and automobiles when they first came out, for example, and that it can be adaptable again, and that the industry does not need to be coddled. It needs to be held accountable when you know, shortcuts are taken with respect to safety. If you have just a profit motive and an incentive to be the first out there to race with the new technologies onto the road, then on occasion, and we've already seen this happen, not just arguably, but I think in fact, shortcuts have been taken and and technologies are being beta tested in essence on our roadways. And we know crashes are happening with some regularity now. And if a phone, an iPhone is being beta tested and it crashes, you lose data. But if an AV is being beta tested and it crashes, you lose lives. And so traditionally, when you've had a car crash, you've had one driver suing another in state court. And then on occasion, you'll have products liability cases where you're suing a manufacturer and often those end up in federal court. But what we may now be trending towards in the future is more and more cases being, in essence, miniature products liability cases involving AV manufacturers and designers and software developers and component parts manufacturers. And those cases may become more expensive and may become more often cases that end up in federal court. And our insurance companies are having, in essence, emergency meetings now because of the unknowns. You know, we know that more than 90% of all crashes are caused by human error. We know that in the long term, probably as crashes decrease, premiums will go down. But in the short term, it's unclear. And premiums probably will go up because of the unknowns, because of the increased cost of repairing these more sophisticated vehicles, the AVs. And we're going to see a migration of liability from the individual driver more and more to the manufacturers and to corporations. And that's going to change insurance, automobile insurance, uh, uh, dramatically. So it sounds, Quentin, like what you're what you're doing is saying... Right now, we're, we're going from a shift from individual driver liability to now some sort of hybrid of liability between the manufacturer and the driver. And so now you're, you've got two defendants, whereas before you maybe just had one. Is that, is that a pithy way of, of summarizing or is that oversimplifying? No, I think that's accurate. And furthermore, we are in really a phase of partial autonomy, not full autonomy, in spite of, of manufacturers such as Tesla, who arguably 
promote and sell their vehicles as fully autonomous, at least th those have been the claims. I think Robert Simwald, the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, said this week or, or last week, this was his quote, if you own a car with partial automation, you do not own a self-driving car. Don't pretend that you do. And some have argued, mainly plaintiff's attorneys, but, but the families of some who have been killed and Teslas in particular have argued that they're being hyped and the designers of these vehicles, they're being hyped as fully autonomous. And when you call a feature on a Tesla, for instance, autopilot, are you not engendering at least the thought that I can turn over completely the driving of the automobile to the machine? And those cars are not ready for that to occur. We've seen that when they crash, not just Teslas, but others. So we are still testing the technology. One day we will get there. Uh, and, and there are going to be ethical issues in the meantime as well. Do the cars need to be perfectly safe, the AVs, or do they just need to be safer than the average human driver? And that's a big ethical question that will control how quickly these get rolled out. What is our tolerance for deaths and passengers and drivers in these autonomous vehicles? Well, and, and if, if morning rush hour is any indication, the the average human driver is a pretty low bar when you're looking at, <laughs> at safety for an AV. So, sure. so now, Ron, let's. I want to hear your perspective on on what Quentin just laid out for us. So, you know, he talked about Tesla's autopilot, or I think enhanced autopilot, as they've they've rolled out in the last year or two. Now, I've actually been in cars with autonomous control. I've been in cars with autopilot or enhanced autopilot. And the one thing I've always noticed is there's all these warnings that go up and say, keep your hands on the wheel, you know, stay attentive, you know, don't, don't play a video game while your, while your car is in autopilot. Is that enough for Tesla to, to avoid liability or, or is there, is there more that's needed? I want to, I want to hear your perspective to what Quentin just laid out. The example you just gave about what you experienced is a perfect example of the types of liability that you're going to be looking at with these vehicles. Mm. Tesla, if a vehicle, a Tesla vehicle, another vehicle gets involved in a crash, the immediate thing that's going to come to mind with regard to the vehicle is products liability. And we have to talk about reasonableness and design and manufacture and the like, just like they do with any other product. But at the same time, the warnings are going up. And if you're an individual driving the vehicle or what appears to have happened in a fatal accident in Arizona, you're being inattentive at the time. Sounds like a negligence cause of action. Now, we don't insure against everything going wrong under products liability or negligence regimes. We insist on a reasonableness standard. So you would think if all the warnings go up, that might be enough to protect the manufacturer from liability. But then someone could say, I could easily see this argument being spun out, you know, it's not enough, it's not enough to have a visual sign going up if that's what it is. You have to have an audio broadcast or whatever in the car as another reminder to someone. And a jury one of these days is going to have to decide whether if a visual image goes up, is that enough? Do you need an audio image or audio recording? The same thing with the negligence of an operator. Was the operator being inattentive? Did the operator not look at anything and the like? But one thing I want to throw in on top of everything else, 
we're really talking about multiple layers of liability here beyond the manufacturer. If the autonomous vehicle transmits information through some type of provider somewhere else, then the question is going to be going back into discovery where along the chain of communication might there have been some type of problem. I'll give you another example, something that might be far-fetched, but we talked about it yesterday. Uh, There are a lot of systems and phones and whatever now that allow you to have remote access to stoves or whatever in your home. If you're in a vehicle and you're using a communication system in the vehicle to communicate with the home, and if a mistake somehow is made somewhere and the home burns down because you turned on the stove, where's the liability along that? I mean, that's the Internet of Things. That's a little beyond autonomous vehicles. But I'm trying to make a point that if you're in situations where there are accidents, you as an attorney are going to have to be able to talk to your client, or engage in discovery to find out where something might have gone wrong along the chain of events that led up to an accident. So, Quentin, let's take what Ron just said. You know, he, and he, and he, you know, he, he laid it out in, in multiple layers. But let's take the example of you know, if if I'm driving a Tesla and I decide to engage autopilot, and then I think Quentin in the in in the report that you were alluding to earlier. In that case, the driver was actually playing a game on his phone when his car crashed while it was engaged in autopilot. So at that point, is that is that strictly driver error, or is there something else that the auto manufacturer has to do to make sure that the human does not start playing video games or you know or read a book or or take a nap or do something else while that car is is engaged in its autopilot function? What else should Tesla do from a plaintiff's perspective? As far as the warnings and things beeping at you, anybody who has sat in a hospital room with a loved one and heard the alarms and, and, and beeps going off and seen the nurses and even the loved ones of the patient ignoring them after a period of time knows that warnings and beeps quickly become white noise. It's just human mm-hmm. nature. As far as negligence, I think there's a longstanding principle in products liability law that misuse of a product is foreseeable. And simply because you you warn or put something in an owner's manual does not in and of itself necessarily absolve you as the manufacturer of liability in the situation. It's a case-by-case determination. Some would argue, many have argued, that the very name autopilot, it creates an expectation on the part of the users that it it is indeed safe for me to check my emails as my Tesla drives itself down the highway. And you know, and, and you've seen in some of these crashes that literally these aren't situations where the hand was off the wheel for 20 minutes before the crash. The hand will be off the wheel for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds of the minute preceding the crash. So it's not an extended period of time. Uh, you, you will notice as you study some of these crashes that hands are even off the wheel, but it's enough. And the human vigilance has been down. And it's an open question whether the designers of these systems are up to the task of keeping the human driver vigilant and engaged. And if you contrast how airplanes systems are designed, there's a dramatic contrast. Pilots and airplanes, the design of the system is such, the pilots are expected to say, stay and must stay engaged, and then they're warned when they make a mistake. 
The Tesla design, on the other hand, lets you disengage and then warns you to re-engage. And that has been shown time and time again. Once you allow a human operator to disengage, then it is very foreseeable that it's going to be difficult to re-engage that driver. Vigilance is, is dropped. Attention is elsewhere, whether it's on a video game or checking an email. And the beep and the warning in and of itself does not get the driver engaged when it should on many occasions. Now, if I'm trying to play the other side of that coin, you know, I'd say, look, you get plenty of drivers without autopilot or without some form of autonomous control who are still checking their emails while their hands are on the wheel. And accidents happen that way too. But we don't call that a product defect. That becomes driver negligence. So how do you... How do you parse that? And is, is that even a fair question? Ron, is, is, that, is that the argument you would make in response to Quentin? Or have I just, have I just totally botched the, the defense side of that? I think the argument you're making is something that would be very good to present to a jury. And the jury will have an, op- a jury will have an opportunity to say that there was no negligent design or manufacture or whatever of the product. Reasonable warnings were given. And it's entirely possible in a situation like that, if you're in a comparative negligence regime, I could easily see a jury say, well, the driver's responsible for it and the manufacturer's responsible for it. Uh, One thing you could say, for example, you're looking at devices to put into vehicles to avoid the problem. The vehicle will not engage autopilot unless both hands of the driver are on a particular pad of a wheel. So it's always it's everything else in this area. It's a question of cost to do something, whether it's reasonable to incur that cost, whether the solution is a reasonable one. But then again, I don't know about making the vehicle the insurer of an individual who's negligent. And I think that's a lot of what goes into the question you just posed. Well, so Quentin, what would be what would be your take on on that question? So you know, you you raised the the analogy of of people sitting in a hospital room and ignoring the beeps, or maybe even a fire alarm going off in a building and people staying at their desks might be another example of that, where people just ignore warnings. And therefore, that that means that there's a misuse of the product, if I understood the argument correctly. But then people are misusing non-autonomous cars by checking their emails or talking on the phone with a handheld, you know, w- w- without their, their hands-free system engaged, they're just talking on a phone while driving a vehicle. So at that point, is that a product defect on the vehicle side, or is that purely user error? I mean, can you can you try to you know maybe answer that question from a plaintiff's perspective? It's a, a situationally dependent analysis. And if you're driving your grandfather's car non-autonomous and you're distracted and you're checking your emails or you're playing a, a video game on your phone, you are unambiguously in control of that vehicle. And you are negligent as the operator if you smack into the back of another car and someone is injured. So that's that's the easiest extreme of the spectrum to analyze. The other end of the spectrum is if you are in a completely autonomous vehicle in 2040 or whatever year that occurs and you're going down the road and there's no expectation, no legal requirement, no regulatory requirement that you remain vigilant and you are literally allowed to read a book assuming books still exist, or check your cell phone messages or do whatever as you go down the road and there's a crash, you should be completely absolved. What we have today is what one, believe it or not, there are professors of AVs now 
what one AV professor calls the mushy middle of partial autonomy. We are in somewhere in between in the spectrum. And Ron is correct. In a comparative negligence or comparative fault regime, the jury would have to weigh in and balance what were the expectations, what was the parsing of responsibilities here, what responsibility did the operator maintain, was the operator apprised of the limitations of the system and when the operator would need to step in, and did the operator somehow fall down in carrying out the duties of the operator. But now, some of these operators, at least, are being lulled some would argue, into a sense of false dependency on a system, the belief that the system has capabilities that it does not, the belief that the system literally can drive the vehicle without human input, and that human input and human control is the exception rather than the rule. And there's an argument to be made, is all I'm saying, there's an argument to be made that the designers of the systems can do and should do a better job of keeping the drivers engaged and of alerting the drivers when they fail to become engaged. And for instance, with respect to Tesla, one of the discussion points was about knowing when the driver is disengaged. Tesla uses a torque sensor on the steering wheel to monitor whether the user is engaged in, in control of the vehicle. And that has been criticized by the NTSB and others in comparison to, for instance, what GM Cadillac uses, which is an actual camera monitoring the eyes of the user. Mm. That system, monitoring the eyes of the user, most believe and agree, is much more effective and truly gauging whether the operator is staying vigilant. However, it has implications of, you know, Big Brother, you know, filming you as you're driving down the road. Or cybersecurity, I would imagine, too, right? There, somebody hacks into sure. your car, and now suddenly your, your privacy has been compromised. Well, let me raise something else just on what Clinton said. Please. If this vehicle is being used by a California consumer and biometric information is being collected, it's entirely possible that the California Consumer Privacy Act may come into effect. Same thing in New York State, because New York has the SHIELD Act now that is intended to protect biometric information. Illinois has that. So imagine you're in a situation where I'm not the owner of the vehicle. I haven't given whatever consent I'm supposedly give to allow my biometric information, my eyeballs, to be looked at and recorded. I let a friend Mm -hmm. drive the vehicle. Where's the consent that the friend gives when he uses a vehicle that he knows his biometric information is being recorded, which is probably going to happen here. It's got to go somewhere to be recorded someplace. What are the privacy interests on that? So arguably, if, if I, again, I don't know much about these, these privacy acts, but I would think arguably the consent would follow the vehicle as opposed to the consent following the individual. Is that, is that not how the consent works in those particular jurisdictions? My understanding is consent means you have to effectively give informed consent to what's going on. And in some jurisdictions, it may even have to be in writing. Now, assuming that's right, whether it's informed consent or written consent or whatever, use my example. I own a car. I just go to my friend and, hey, drive for me for 15 minutes. I'm tired. I don't know where the consent is when I sit behind the wheel and I operate the car. Is a screen pop up and say, by the way, you're consenting to the capture of all my biometric information. 
so I can monitor your driving. And then I've got to assume in these vehicles, in the manufacturers, someone's collecting the information and maybe even using it for research purposes at some point. Uh, I think that's an area of regulation by litigation, if you want to call it that, or regulation in California by the California Attorney General, as well as possible class actions to think about in this area. And cybersecurity is something else. I was positing before what happens when you need to do discovery to find out the way electronic communications or electronic information is communicated. What's the cybersecurity controls in place with all this information here? Because Quentin's positing a lot of personal information that may fall within the scope of privacy statutes going out there. So what reasonable security measures are being done with data that's being transferred? Or somebody hacks into your into your car for whatever reason and wants to wants to monitor what's going on, right? I mean that that's that's a distinct possibility if it's if it's being sent over the airwaves, is it not? It's a fun thing to think about. It's like the <laughs> it's like some instances now where we seem to have seen where medical devices are being hacked. Right. Now let's one thing that that I think both of your perspectives have in common, and you've both said this, is that Ultimately, this is up to the jury. So this is, and it's very, it's very case dependent. So if we look at this from, from a litigation perspective, whether it's plaintiff side or defense side, is there a situation where, where you can get summary judgment? Or is this purely a factual inquiry every single time where you have to go in front of a jury in order to get a definitive response? Now, I know, Ron, you were, you were a magistrate judge for a number of years, but, you know, Quentin, I know you've, you, you've had your, You've had your share of summary judgment hearings. So let's let's start with you, Quentin. Do you think do you think this is always going to be a factual inquiry that has to go in front of a jury? Or do you see this do, do you see there being a situation where summary judgment would be warranted one way or the other? I think it will be fact specific. I do not think summary judgment will always be warranted or always not be warranted. I can foresee a set of circumstances or facts in, in a in a scenario where it is unambiguously shown that I fell asleep or I checked out and didn't have my hand on the steering wheel for the last 30 minutes or whatever it may be. And and it's just unambiguously clear that I failed uh, to stay vigilant, that I was warned, uh, you know, repeatedly. And then the crash happens Uh, in that scenario, you know, perhaps a, a summary judgment would be completely warranted. Ron, what about you? You know, there are so many variables that go into an award of summary judgment in a products liability case. One of the major things you have to consider that we haven't even talked about today is how you go about putting evidence in when you're dealing with these systems. Uh, We're talking about expert Mm -hmm. testimony. That's going to drive up the cost of discovery. It's going to drive up the cost for a party. Getting an expert report, getting a rebuttal report, is summary judgment possible? Sure. And there have been any one of a number of situations where summary judgment can be granted in products liability cases. Causation is probably one of the best ones. It's simplest ones, the basis for an award of summary judgment. I just think it's going to take a long way to get there. Interesting. Now, let's let's think about, you know, for, for any of our listeners who who want to maybe get more steeped into issues involving autonomous vehicles or or self-driving cars, as some people call them. 
where can you go to learn about this? You know, is, are there publications? Are there forums? Are there CLE programs? You know, Quentin, let's start with you. I know you're very knowledgeable in this area. How did you come about learning all this? Was it on the job or did you, did you read a book of some kind? <laughs> well, it's ripped from today's headlines. There have been a whole series of spectacular crashes and then there have been follow-up uh, investigations by the NTSB and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and others, and, and detailed reports have been issued. There have been governmental studies. There have been studies by think tanks such as Rand and Brookings and others. Uh, there have been law review articles. And so in the last five to seven years, there's been just sort of a, a tsunami, if you will, of legal commentary and writings and analysis and studies. And the initial wave seemed to predict and prognosticate this will be here you know, tomorrow mm-hmm. or in five years. And everyone, it seems now, is taking a little bit of a step back and realizing there are issues that still need to be resolved, not just technological issues, but even ethical issues and and regulatory issues. And our government has sort of been a day late and a dollar short. They're working on that now, belatedly. There have been some, some bills in Congress circulating in recent months. And, and so it's something you, if you're interested in, you will see an article almost every single day that touches upon autonomous vehicles in some way, if not every day. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, one of the other issues, and I think Ron might have touched on this, was the insurance aspect of it and how you insure these vehicles. I know, I know I mentioned earlier the TIPS Auto Law Committee. There's been a lot of talk at that committee about the insurance ramifications and liability ramifications. So... Yeah, there's 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 many many layers to this. Ron, where, where do you recommend lawyers go to learn more about these the legal issues surrounding these types of cases? There are a number of CLE programs out there that are talking about this and related technologies. And I'm coming to autonomous vehicles from a t- couple different perspectives. I've written in addition to what you mentioned before for tips. I've written articles and I've spoken on Fourth and Fifth Amendment implications of individuals using autonomous vehicles. I've uh, done a lot on other types of technologies, drones, for example. And the, the conversation we're having today about AVs kind of mirrors a webinar I did yesterday or a mm. couple of days ago on drones. Who's monitoring them? Who's who's regulating them? What are the liability schemes? So coming out of my background, doing a lot with electronic information and litigation, I've gotten into these new technologies. Something else that's related to this that Quentin and I were talking about a little bit before with the biometrics is facial recognition technology. Sure. I don't know how that might fit into the vehicle, but now that I'm thinking of it, I could easily see an argument mm-hmm. being made. You're not going to be able to use this vehicle unless your biometrics match what we have on file. Yeah. What happens if you chose to wear glasses that day or didn't shave for a few days, grew a beard, whatever, and it can, your, your biometrics may change. So that's interesting. Well, eyeballs theoretically don't, but you're right. If you've got glasses on, I wish I had good answers for all that. But the, the way technology is advancing in these areas now is just exponential. And we as lawyers need to figure out how we deal with it in the regimes we have now. So we have products liability law. We have negligence law. Where, for example, you're thinking about the law 
differently again. Thinking about the law of trespass. How does the law of trespass help you when a drone's flying over your property? Mm. So there are a lot of different things we have to think about. And until there are new regulatory or liability regimes out there, we take what we've got and we fit everything in, like we've been doing for a very long time. Wow. Well, obviously there's there's many layers to this, and it's probably more than we can fit into one podcast. I I could talk about this all day. This is this is fascinating stuff, and we've got two great guests who helped us with this. But unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. I do want to thank my guests, Quentin Brogdon and Ronald Hedges, for joining us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Rocky. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, and of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off for now. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.